0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Politics in Question, the podcast where we ask the big questions about our political institutions, how they're failing, and how we might fix them. I'm Lee Drutman, a senior fellow at New America.
1: And I'm James Walner, a senior fellow at the R Street Institute and a lecturer in the
0: Department of Political Science at Clemson University. So we are recording this podcast on Monday, November 7th, the day before Election Day. So. As we talk, we don't know the outcome, but we do know that whatever the outcome, there's still going to be a widespread feeling that U.S. democracy is in crisis and that this crisis is going to take years, maybe decades to resolve. So while we talk a lot about government institutions on this podcast and how they might be failing, we often ignore the other great source of power in our society, which is business. So today we're going to have a conversation about business and democracy, and there's nobody better qualified to help us through this conversation than Daniela Balu Ayers, who is the CEO and co-founder of the Leadership Now Project, an organization of business leaders who care about the quality of U.S. democracy and want to improve it. So welcome to the podcast, Daniela. Great to have you. How are you feeling about the state of uh, U.S. democracy?
2: Thanks so much for having me, Lee and James. I think the way that I'm feeling is a reflection of what, unfortunately, the objective data would suggest, which is that we're in one of the weakest positions for democracy in this country's history. And uh, unfortunately, that's consistent with also global trends of declining uh, democracy as well. So I'm concerned, let's just say.
0: All right. Well, I'm concerned, too. So we'll, we'll work through that concern. Now, personally, I... Think a lot about hyperpartisan polarization these days, but before I used to think a lot about the role of business in democracy, particularly the influence of corporations over our democracy. And I used to feel like that influence was not very positive. I wrote a book about business lobbying called The Business of America is Lobbying, and generally, I would say that if I had to oversimplify, mostly business wanted to be left alone and wanted the government to stay out of the economy. But more recently, as businesses have had come to Washington to spend more and more money, they also started to want government to help them out through tax credits or particular regulations or overseas support. And you know, I, I would say in terms of the relationship of business and democracy, I, I don't think and maybe I'm wrong here, that businesses took democracy all that seriously as an issue. And we also probably took it for granted that we were always going to have a democracy in the U.S. But I I think business influence and politics maybe eroded the quality of our democracy by probably contributing to some degree to inequality that undermined the stability of democracy and maybe weakening regulations around campaign finance or lobbying or just sort of generally distorting political outcomes. So how much responsibility does American business bear for some of the problems that I think we're dealing with right now? Something I'm
2: kind of curious about. Yeah, thanks, Lee. And look, it's the right question to ask. Right, which is what is all of our responsibility to be part of the solution and for the problem that we're facing? And, I, you know, I think the reality is that the role of business in politics, the role of business in society is one that Americans have mixed feelings about and even business people. So we have all these contradictions, right? The Edelman Trust Barometer is now consistently year after year saying that. Business is the most trusted in society. People believe businesses do a better job than government at delivering and they have more faith in their ability to deliver. And at the same time, there's a lot of mistrust in the role that business plays in politics and how it uses its influence, et cetera. Uh, And I think the reality is that both things are true, right? Whether you love or hate business, it's a very big actor in our society. It plays different roles in different spheres business is anything but monolithic when you look across industries, size, et cetera. So you know, I think the question that I had in co-founding leadership now and that we as an organization have is what is the role business should be playing in democracy? How do we grapple the fact that even if you take aside for a minute the role it directly plays in politics through industry associations, which I'd love to talk more about because I think that's relevant. But just business is a huge actor in American society in terms of the scale of our industry, the influence, the cultural role that business plays, employment. Uh, so I think we need to see all of the nuances of business. We have a huge amount of responsibility, all of us, particularly business, of making sure the system works and is functional and that we have economy that can sustain. Uh, so I don't think we have to love everything that business does or that some businesses do versus others to ask the question, how can business play a positive role at this moment when we have such a critical uh, challenge that our country is facing?
1: Well, I'm fascinated by this topic. And I think that uh, there's, You know, there's good and bad in everything. Shakespeare taught us this. And I think some people look at business and politics and see nothing but bad uh, throughout our history. There's certainly been a lot of that. And yet you, there's also a lot of good there as well. Just like political parties, interest groups, there's, there's a positive and a negative side to it. Um, but my question, I want to kind of go back and pick your brain about where you and Lee opened up our conversation here. And that's this, this sense, uh, this general feeling about our elections right now. And there is a, there's a weird kind of contradiction in our politics as I see it. On one hand, we have a sense that elections are everything, that they, that they are the be-all and end-all of politics, that that's where we will ultimately direct the ship of state into the promised land. We will sail off into the sunset. We will reach our goals. We will do all of the things that a politics are ostensibly meant to do. But then there's also a sense that elections don't really do anything anymore, right? There's a sense of, well, here it is, just more of the same, another election, nothing really changes. And there's a sense of apathy. And I think this points to the fact that Lots of stuff happens in between elections. In fact, the stuff that happens in between elections is just as important, if not more important, it seems to me, than what happens in elections when it comes to solving the policy problems that we face in this society and to to developing solutions, to, to passing laws, to doing new things things. And I really think that we've lost sight of this. And we have to ask ourselves kind of what do we mean by democracy? Where does it occur? Who gets to participate in it? And this, I have an interesting take on kind of the role of business in this process, because the way I think about it is if you want to change the status quo, The status quo being just the kind of what's expected to happen or, you know, is the farm bill going to pass or are we going to pass this general policy for health care or campaign finance reform or anything else? Typically, if you're inside Congress, you're going to have to go outside of Congress and you're going to have to play an outside game. You're going to have to pick a fight and you're going to have to bring more people into the fold, into the debate, grow your coalition so that you can change the status quo because the people in Congress throughout history, the party leaders, the committee chairs the people who are powerful, they like the status quo for the most part, generally speaking, because they're, they're the ones who helped to create it in the first place. And this is where I think, where I'm interested in hearing your thoughts on business, because the kind of tactics, when I spent my time in the Senate, for instance, the kind of tactics, the things you have to do as an outlier, as an AOC, as a Ted Cruz, as someone in between, you have to do a lot of things that businesses generally don't like to do. You have to kind of embrace uncertainty. You have to pick fights. You have to have votes where you lose 1 to 99. You have to get a sense of where the playing field is. And all too often, what would happen is the businesses that we were interacting with didn't like that. They wanted the sure thing. They wanted to know what the outcome was going to be before you had the debate. And that is just, you can't change the status quo with that kind of view. And I'm just curious to see how you, what you think about this. And is that something that you also see when you're interacting with business leaders that they just don't like this uncertainty? It's not good for business. It's not good for the bottom line. And that they, they approach things more from a business standpoint than a politics standpoint in trying to enact big policy change.
2: It's a great question. And you know I'm gonna step back for a second because something I'm so struck by is how different the representation of business is in washington and in politics then how businesses operate in their kind of day-to-day operations and as especially the innovative businesses that have been kind of the growth engine in this country you know when i moved to dc a decade ago from new york i had spent most of my career on the business side building up a company i'd been a management consultant at bain i'd gone to harvard business school It was not until several years out of business school that I had ever even heard of the government affairs function of companies. It was something that was not even in the conception. The U.S. Chamber of Commerce to many business people, especially, let's say, my peers in their 40s, et cetera, are institutions that are relatively unknown, not understood, even those at executive levels. And they operate in a very status quo-oriented, risk-avoidant <laughs> type of approach, which is ironic because it is companies that, and you know, especially in, in, in industries like technology, but in many others that are the big risk takers. It's investors who take risk and return and kind of drive dynamism in our economies. So I think that what Washington sees a business is an extremely narrow picture, which is dominated by a very basic formula, which is government affairs units are asked to minimize risk, tax and regulatory risk. And so the way business shows up in Washington is through that part of a company's kind of function. And it's only, you know, and it's a certain type of company that has a big presence in Washington, because they're highly regulated or otherwise. So. I don't think that's the, you know, I'm so struck by how limited the approach is by the major business institutions in Washington. When the CEO discussions that I'm a part of, if I look at my peers who are CEOs or emerging executives, etc., you know, they're really interested in how do we solve climate change? How do we address this issue? How do we deal with all manner of foreign policy issue, national security having a diverse workforce, etc. But it's like that conversation that's happening in business is not reflected in how business is being represented in politics. So then you get, you know, exactly what you talked about. Uh, The representatives of business in Washington, which usually are actually political people, (laughs) not from the core business, are just coming and saying, please don't do anything that we don't expect, because we don't want anything to change, which is dangerous, I think. And the reality is that, I mean, our economy, our country, our democracy in the past 20 years, and certainly in the past six or seven, is looks completely different than it did before. And yet the playbook is, you know, surprisingly constant of the existing institutions.
0: This is a, a, a really interesting observation because I've thought a lot about the role of lobbying in Washington and, you know, p- part of... Uh, What I came to understand is that the lobbying industry and the government affairs function in many corporations is in many ways a a kind of self-reproducing entity that is interested in just having itself uh, (laughs) being a really important function within the corporate world by, in some ways, creating uncertainty and then resolving that uncertainty – uh, I, I often thought about how it's always at the end of the year that, that this like big tax bill comes up and then there's all this uncertainty and then and then these lobbyists somehow magically resolve it. Uh, for, for the companies. And so there's this, this sort of weird way in which people in the, in the C suite don't really know what's going on in Washington. They rely on the lobbyists to tell them, and the lobbyists have a, a strong incentive to make it seem like there are all these problems that then they are solving for them. Now, I, I want to talk a little bit uh, talk about what has changed in U.S. politics over the last decade or so. And obviously, hyperpartisan polarization has gotten much worse in the way in, in which that has affected the quality of our democracy. But it's also changed the the geographic alignment of our parties and the urban rural divide has become much starker and one of the things that's happened as a result of that is that more and more businesses which are tend to be headquartered in urban areas or kind of around urban clusters tend to rely on college educated High information political consumers and uh, you know, have a lot of them have consumer facing brands. Sort of th- that world has become, I would say, much more democratic party oriented, much more liberal. And so I think a lot of businesses are kind of trying to figure out both in their public-facing branding as well as in their employee recruitment, how to get on board with a, a more progressive worldview, because that's what both their, their selling and their their uh, talent retention and recruitment demand at the same time that our politics remains 50-50. So I'm wondering how you see businesses wrestling with that, and my, my sense is that a lot of businesses would Probably prefer not to have to wade into these fights, but given the, the sort of consumer facing nature of many of these companies and just the, the need to retain and uh, attract talent, I think forces them into a lot of these fights. Does, that, does How are businesses wrestling with this and is this something that, that they'd rather not be wrestling with?
2: Yeah, I mean I think look the reality is is that um you know I mentioned earlier how the Edelman trust barometer ranks business as the most trusted and I think what we're seeing right now is while there's a whole set of policy issues, social issues that are not getting resolved by our political system and business the CEO is the last man or woman standing right that that there's some trust left in the last authority that you as an employee can go to and say this, you know, extreme policy in my state, which maybe has been, you know, passed by a highly gerrymandered legislature on guns or abortion or other issues that is inconsistent with what I, as your employee see as fair or see as uh, aligned with what the majority of people in my state believe, et cetera. So I'm now going to ask you as a CEO to solve it. Uh, And I think what we have had in a lot of our discussions among our members and others is, while it's certainly, I think, up to a, a company can decide where are the most important things for them to step out for their consumers, for their employees, for their stakeholders, that in supporting democracy and Standing for the integrity of the system, the integrity of elections, that there are need to have kind of overall support and faith in the system by which we're governed should be the most universal uh, stance that a company can take. And that by supporting a functional political system, then that is what's going to ultimately get the company off the hook for having to resolve every other problem that's not being solved in politics right now. So I'm worried that democracy is seen when it's positioned as like another corporate responsibility issue. You know, oh, do I weigh in on climate or diversity or democracy, et cetera, as opposed to this is a systemic risk issue. This is about the entire system. It is about the instability of the country, of the economy, uh, of our America's role in the world. So you can't just opt out of worrying about this issue, just like companies now can't opt out of worrying about cybersecurity. So we've really focused on election risk, systemic risk as the thing that belongs on the CEO and board agenda. All
0: right. So can, I just want to hang on to that point for a second, because I it seems kind of tricky uh, when there was all this fight about the Georgia voting rights law or the, I guess, the Voting voting restrictions, you know, some important Atlanta companies, notably Coca-Cola, uh, tried to take a stance on this. But I, I think it's challenging for a lot of companies that want to do business in a state to take a strong stance if they are worried what happens if Republicans keep control in Atlanta uh, or, or in Georgia, you know, and, and how does that affect coca-cola i think it most pressing uh issue uh that comes to comes to mind for a lot of CEOs, i think i'm curious what you think of this is like do you have to to get in line with a, a yeah, what happens if, if the side that you don't support wins, right? Like, I think about what happened with the Ron DeSantis Disneyland Walt Disney uh, clash, where Disney uh, spoke out against DeSantis, and DeSantis said, "Yeah, you ha- you like that tax break that that we're giving you from the state of Florida? Yeah, may- maybe you should shut up." Uh, so, how much does that weigh on businesses that? you know, maybe we shouldn't speak out because if our side loses, you know, there's going to be retribution.
2: Yeah. So I think it is weighing on companies and I think there is a fear and concern about pushback, about being called to a corporation, about state legislatures going after you for taxes, et cetera. Uh, And I'll say two things. One, I think um, this might be a place where also The um, advice that they're getting (laughs) on how to respond to these issues is going to serve them badly in the end, because the default advice I think a lot of CEOs are getting is to be quiet, to hide, to not put themselves out there uh, too much, et cetera. And I think what we know is that once that happens, you're just inviting more and more willingness of the other side to push back on you, more risk of retribution, et cetera. And so I think there are there is a way to deal with this, though, which is has two elements. One, predefining what are the factors, what are the things, what are the triggers where business is going individually and collectively be willing to step out because political leaders are crossing really well-defined lines of what is appropriate in a democracy. And then second is doing that in coalition and that those coalitions really have to be at a state level, although there's some cases where you can do it nationally. So for instance, in 2020, we were part of really building a strong coalition around responding to the questions of legitimacy in the 2020 election. And ultimately, you know, we were alongside everyone from the business roundtable to individual CEOs to uh, to National Association of Manufacturers, and we were all coming out around that election around the same times. So with similar messages to say, yes, this election is legitimate, it should be certified, I mean, to ultimately respond to the insurrection, etc. And that kind of coalition is needed. So I'll talk for a minute about what those triggers could be. And they come out of the political science uh, as well, right? It, so one is refusal to accept a little legitimate eject- election results and experience responding to that in 2020, as I mentioned. Uh, second is responding to political violence, both towards election official, elected officials, election administrators, et cetera. And third is uh, political retribution for free speech or similar with Disney. And I think if what really should have happened, I mean, the Disney case has lots of missteps by Disney and being coming out too late and not being prepared, et cetera. But that would have been a perfect moment for the business roundtable or other or, you know, key Florida business groups to say collectively, you know, this is a line that shouldn't be crossed. And we're not collectively as companies going to accept that political retribution line being crossed. Because business is powerful enough that acting collectively, they should feel Very confident (laughs) that they can push back on that type of behavior from political leaders. So part of what we're doing as an organization is is building that coalition. When we have and and, you know we have in part of building those coalitions, we have uh, groups in Wisconsin and Ohio and Texas and elsewhere who have been proactively coming out in support of democracy and against election denialism and otherwise. So I, I think it is doable, but it requires Being proactive versus kind of status quo oriented, as as James had spoken with. I want to say one other thing that we sometimes there is a sense that well, you know, companies worry about coming out. Is it going to really have an impact anyway? Can we change things? And you know, I would say, look, business knows how to be proactive when they really want to get something done. So if you look at the response, for instance, of the Business Roundtable to the uh, Build Back Better there was an extremely proactive response that rolled out the CEOs and their membership, rolled out the lobbyists, et cetera, to push back on new taxes. And that was an extremely robust enterprise with real money spent and real political capital and human capital deployed. Um, So I would argue that um, that type of proactive action um, is required as well on democracy now, and I wrote a piece. I co-authored a piece with uh, Michael Porter, the Harvard Business School professor, and Harvard Business Review on this last year, where we said, "Look, business knows how to be proactive. <laughs> Let's use that proactive capability for democracy now."
1: I want to touch base on this or ask a question about this this notion of advice. And this is your, your government uh, affairs, and government relations uh, point, the, the fact that we see business or business views politics through this kind of GR lens, it's fascinating. And I hadn't, I, it, I hadn't thought about it as clearly uh, as you put it um, in those terms before. And I think it's absolutely fascinating and it strikes me as absolutely correct. But there is this challenge and this notion of the advice that businesses are getting And the challenge is how do you affect change in between elections? How do you do politics? How do you play the legislative game? How do you play it better than your opponents? And on one hand, this is what precisely the government affairs teams are ostensibly meant to do, notwithstanding their status quo orientation. But they're supposed to provide this advice because winning in Congress is different than winning in business. It's just a different skill set. It's a different activity. You don't see articles in Harvard Business Review and other business magazines on how to or journals on how to win in Congress. Political scientists to be honest with you, they don't, they, they don't even really know. You pick up the Legislative Studies Quarterly, there's not a lot of stuff in there on the micro orientations of Congress and how individuals go about winning there. It's all about these macro things and hyper partisanship and, and all of these larger global forces that are that are impinging upon our um, our politics and, and creating outcomes. When in reality, it's about men and women waking up in the morning, putting their feet on the ground and going to Congress and, and trying to win We're not in our case today, I think. And so this, I think, highlights a bigger problem, which is there's a brain drain. There's a real absence of the kind of knowledge that you need. This is kind of what my job was ostensibly when I worked in Congress. Um, But in Congress, the number of members and staff who know how to make the institution work are getting fewer and fewer every year as the institution does less and less and less. Outside of Congress, there's not been a lot of this, but there certainly seems to be a lot less now. And so I guess my question is, where are business leaders getting this advice? Do they recognize that this is a problem? And then how are they trying to overcome this challenge, right? If you have a policy goal, how are you going to get the advice you need, the knowledge you need, the skill sets you need to make it a reality inside Congress? Because I don't I don't see a lot of that. I don't see a lot of people out there who can provide this advice. And I'm very curious as to how business leaders are compensating for this challenge.
2: Look, James, I, I really agree on this overall brain drain point and about the ability to get things done to begin with and even to innovate in any way, right? When you have this... Very significant, both brain drain and also gap in understanding between many who are leading businesses and then those who are in the political sphere. Uh, So I'll I'll share like thought on the longish game on that and the short term. So overall, in terms of part of the reason I started this organization was I was really concerned between the disconnect that I saw in my business networks and political networks. There was almost no overlap and understanding. And, you know, if we think about who's rising in poli- uh, in business right now, it's the rising leaders are Gen X. Gen X was notoriously, um, my own generation, notoriously disengaged from politics. Uh, you know, the Berlin Wall had fallen, business was booming, there just wasn't much concern or thinking about it. And so we have a whole set of leaders now in companies, and this might be particularly profound in Silicon Valley, et cetera, who've really not, you know, there's need to be need civic education, basically, um, who didn't really learn about how our political system works. They don't have a lot of connectivity to people in it. And so they end up, you know, with uh, mediocre advice or no advice, their engagement and uh, not able to play a role. But what happened the last several years after 2016 and polarization et cetera, is there is interest. I mean, there's enough of a cadre of people in this business world who are really concerned about where we are, and that's kind of where we draw our membership from. Uh, and we need that group actually engaging directly. And so much of politics from business is kind of outsourced to lobbyists, to government affairs, et cetera. And we actually need to bring in the people who are leading companies and who are trying to, you know, or who are frankly Confused, concerned, don't understand why things are working to be more directly part of the solution. So I think we've tried to do a lot of that, get people exposed, engaged into the problem solving. But I mean, the scale of that needs to be significant. And I think from a talent perspective as well, I'm always struck by the number of people coming from outside of politics, but who are smart, have amazing careers, who would, you know, could play a role coming into the political system to be you know, part of making our government institutions operate more effectively, but they need they would need an entry point so that you can get talent from the broader kind of country that wants to be part of a solution. I always have believed and and I feel so so strongly right now that there's all the talent needed in this country to solve this problem. Like it's just not organized to do so. You know, if you give me one percent of all the talent sitting in the tech, finance, education, world, et cetera, put them into really thinking about how we create an incredible, you know, democracy, economy, et cetera. And we create a Manhattan project for democracy. I really think we can get out of this mess. But you know, this is there's really not enough attention outside of Washington to creating a a great functional system. And as you said, not just one that's focused on campaigns, which is Really, such a small part of the picture of governing. I mean, not just legislating, running our institutions, et cetera. I sometimes, I think, sometimes the overwhelming thing about the state of our system is, as well, you know, is that there are so many pieces of the puzzle that need to be renewed in terms of functionality. But that's also, you know, a great opportunity for reinvention and, and innovation.
1: And I just want to make one point, Lee, real quick to follow up. What struck me in what you just said about the Manhattan, this kind of like Manhattan Project 4, and this is something that even the members, the senators and the House members, they always say that we have a, pro- a challenge and let's let's come up with the best possible solution. And I think you're right. There is a lot of talent there and there's a lot that we can do. But I guess my, my, qu- my question and my point is that even with the best possible solution, you still need people who know how to get that across the finish line. That The solution itself is not enough. It's never been enough in American history. You have to know how to legislate. And that legislative skill never. we've not had a lot of it in recent years. It's, gotten, it's dwindling and dwindling. And there are fewer and fewer people out there who know how to take an idea and say, okay, now let's make this thing a reality. Let's navigate this political process and let's get it across the finish line in the end and develop legislative campaigns, seeing the terrain for what it is, learning how to survive the struggle and ultimately ensure the outcome is 60 70 percent of what you want it's that advice that i think people are so in need of and it's that advice that you can't find there's not like a journal that's not like a newspaper there's not an association there's very few people that have that kind of advice that can offer it and i think that's the real challenge that we face right now
0: so uh, when you look at the sort of way in which business leaders have evolve their understanding of politics what what does that journey look like and what do you see as, some of the most promising directions that that energy can go in terms of what, what are particular institutional or organizational changes that you think ho- hold the most promise as business leaders begin to wrap their head around and then have a kind of journey of, of going from politics as a, a very simplistic thing to a much more complex
2: system. Yeah, I think it's a good question. And, you know, our model from the start has been to ground all of our work in the best academic research and build an understanding in our members of what's happening in our democracy. What does the data tell us? What is the thinking out of business schools and policy schools? So I think the first step has been to exercise a different part of one's brain <laughs> when thinking about politics, because the typical way we're fed information on politics or consuming information on politics is is kind of, is a horse race politics. It's very narrow. It's a better power particular campaign. It's Democrats versus Republicans, et cetera. And so I think what we've really sought to do, uh, and I've seen collectively as a group, the learning of really Thinking about the system and the system of democracy, the incentives of the system, the quality of talent in the system, the way that money flows in the system, those systemic issues as the grounding for understanding what's really happening. And business people are, that's a natural way to look at things when you analyze a market, when you analyze opportunities, you look at things in that way. So I think that's first is to build, I think there's this opportunity to build this understanding of the system and its incentives, et cetera, and I mean, the kind of things that you look at, uh Lee, as well. I do think that there is a growing coalition of business people. And you know, leadership now is intentionally a membership organization of individuals, not companies. And these are individuals who are forward-leaning, who are uh, business leaders and professionals and are sometimes really using their platform within their company and are other times participating as someone with business sensibilities who wants to see the system change and innovate. And I think that's important because we need a person's company shouldn't be their only representation in the political system. You want those within the company to have their own political sensibilities and be able to play a role as individuals and as leaders. I think that's something I've seen evolve in a big way. People build an individual and understanding and perspective on the incentives of the system. But I think there's two things now, or maybe three, that we could see business people and, and companies play a meaningful role in. I think this first one of just protecting the system, responding to systemic risk, really making clear that we all have a stake in the system. Business does have a stake in a sound democracy. Capitalism and the economy depend on a sound democracy, joining in coalition to stand up if we really see egregious erosion of the system at a national and state level. I think you know we see our members uh, across the country are ready to play that role. They are playing that role and are joining with others to do it. So I think that's going to be critical in the next couple of years. I think second is the innovation in the system. Uh, and I think when we look at really reaching two-part types of innovation, one is the systemic reforms like final five voting or dressing gerrymandering or other ways to increase competitiveness in the system. I think there's a lot of affinity for those kinds of interventions in the business community and people who could play an active role at a state level to supporting them. Uh, but you know I think the the second piece is innovating in the system in innovating in the ways that people are engaging are consuming information um, and that's not so much companies companies have a role in terms of informing people that they're you know of election day etc but I think there really is an opportunity to look differently at the way people are you know organized to participate in politics you know we have the ARP and the NRA and the Sierra Club and a lot of organizations that have been around for a long time that are vehicles for engagement in politics. We have very few modern new versions of those. I think a lot to learn from how people engage, consumers engage, that you could apply to innovating for citizen engagement models or otherwise. Uh, And the same holds for you know how messaging creating talent pipelines for politics, et cetera. There's just some really strong learnings from, from the business world. You know, yeah. the the flips one thing I just wanted to say and the flip side is is we see, you know, Elon Musk today tweeted that people should go and support Republicans in the midterms because that's a good way to balance power in Washington. Uh which is a pretty profound thing to do as an owner, you know, now just recently owning Twitter and uh, presumably was attempting to have some semblance of being a neutral platform and has just kind of blown that all up, right? And so he's not afraid to break those norms, even if some others are. Uh, so I think we're going to have a, you know, I think we might see a more visible fight between the libertarians like Must, or I don't know, they claim to be libertarians. <laughs> um, Reed Hoffman this week came out on LinkedIn Saying you know there is a really authoritarian threat in this country right now, and that's also in the Republican Party. I mean, I I think we're going to see influential individuals. I hope not only men. I don't. (laughs) If I have something to do with it, there will be some women leaders who are part of those voices as well, but who are fighting out in the kind of elite business-based perspective about where this country should go. Yeah.
0: Well, I I, I do really think that we are in this moment in which a lot of people are. Rethinking our political institutions, it really does feel like a hinge moment in which the old order is collapsing and a new one has yet to be built yet. Uh, In terms of the reforms that you mentioned, final five voting, which I personally am quite a bit skeptical of because I think it undermines political parties, which are essential institutions. We did an episode. I like fusion voting, by the way. Yes, I love fusion voting, uh, which I think builds political parties. I love proportional representation. But, you know, there's a there's a wide variety of of reforms that are popping up that people are, are working through. And to me, that's a sign that we are in a moment in which there will be innovation it's just a question of what it will be and how it will shake out and i think businesses will have to play an important role and i'm so glad that you're doing what you're doing and helping business leaders think about democracy and value democracy and hopefully put their resources and social and cultural capital into it. So thank you for what you do. And thank you for joining us on another episode of Politics in Question.
2: Thanks so much, Lee and James. Pleasure to hear.
0: Thank you for listening to Politics in Question. The show is a joint production of New America and the R Street Institute. And our producers are Shannon Lynch and Jason Stewart. Theme music was composed by yours truly.